And our guest speaker, Bill Unger, of course, is, is ordained for many, many years. He and Edna uh, were missionaries previously. Uh, he served as our associate pastor several years ago, in case you didn't know that. Uh, they relocated to North Carolina, but then relocated back to New Hampshire and been with us now for several years. So please give uh, our dear brother, Bill Unger, a warm welcome as he comes today. Amen. Thank you. Yep. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Rick. Um, I guess it was about a, a month ago uh, where we had breakfast or brunch, lunch, something like that. Um, I was telling him about a, uh, a former teacher at Zion was speaking at a church that I was attending, and in his message he said, uh, you never know what a person's going to say when they come under the anointing. So I uh, appreciate Pastor Rick taking a chance, setting me loose this morning. <laughs> you know, I, I do have certain goals uh, when, I, when I get in front of people to preach. And one of my more immediate goals is to not make a fool of myself. Uh, my second goal is a little bit more uh, far-reaching. That is uh, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, not only be acceptable to God, but be life-changing for someone. And so I really hope that uh, what I have to say here this morning uh, be more than just a, a sermon, uh, even a good sermon, but one that uh, would, impact, uh, would impact you in some way. You see, preaching is really kind of a poor medium uh, because you're not going to remember very much of what I said when you leave here today. So... Um, I really rely on the Holy Spirit to really uh, impact your life, and so I ask that you listen with an open mind and an open heart, and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you today about whatever you're dealing with in your life. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word here today, and I ask, Lord, that you would anoint me and your word, and you would also anoint those that are here today to hear and to understand. And Lord, so I just give this time over to Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, during the same luncheon that uh, Pastor Rick and I were at, uh, I was sharing with him what I wanted to speak on uh, tonight, or today rather. And, I, and I've been sort of been thinking about this long before uh, Pastor even asked me. And the text that I'm going to be speaking from is from Psalms 139. And he told me that that was Stacy's favorite psalm. And so I said, okay, I'll take that as a confirmation that this is, uh, this is where you want me to go, Lord. Not you, but the Lord. <laughs> so uh, if you'll open up to uh, Psalms 139, uh, I'm not going to read the entire psalm. I'm going to leave certain parts of it out just for the sake of brevity. And... Hopefully it'll take you someplace uh, maybe a little bit deeper than where you've gone before when you've read this psalm. But beginning at verse 1, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar off, and you comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Uh, there is not a word on my tongue, 
But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And you have hedged me behind and before and have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is, it is high. I cannot attain to it. So we all know God is all-knowing. There's not, there isn't anything about us that God is not aware of uh, in, your, uh, in your thoughts, in your life, in the way that your life is going. Uh, Jesus said that I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And I was thinking about... Um, Maybe some of the things that, that are going on in your own life that uh, maybe nobody else knows about except you. And God knows about it also. He knows it and he understands it and he knows what the solution is. An example that comes to mind is at the Last Supper where, where Peter profusely tells Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll never leave you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with you till you die or till I die. And Jesus says to them, Jesus knows, he understands where Peter's coming from. And he says, you're going to deny me three times before, uh, before, the, before the chicken even crows. And Peter wouldn't, uh, probably didn't accept it at that time. Because at that time, he was convinced that that's exactly what he would do. Because he was not aware of the weakness that was in his own life. He was not aware that deep down inside, he was a coward. And that all that bravado and all that uh, bullying is just a cover-up for, for, for a, a little man who was a coward, who when the chips were down, was going to turn tail and run. Well, that's what Peter was. But Peter was that. Jesus understood that. And yet, Jesus tells Mary a few days later, tell my disciples and Peter that I am alive. I have risen. You see, Jesus understands who you are, what you are, the way you are, and how you got there through the environment that you lived in, through the genetic structure that you've had to deal with when you were born. And he said, and I love you anyway. And nothing can change that. And that tells us a lot about God. When we talk about the knowledge of God, who who really understands God? what God is. Throughout history, people have constructed their own concept of what God should be and have built beautiful temples uh, in the ancient world to gods that uh, did not exist. In fact, Paul, as he wandered around the Acropolis in Athens, saw this one altar, you know, you know dedicated to, to the unknown God. The Greeks just wanted to cover all their bases. They didn't want to leave anybody out. They didn't want to offend any particular God. And so when, when Paul was talking to them about the resurrection of Christ, they just scratched their heads and said, this guy's nuts. Because sometimes we construct a God in such a way that is more to our liking rather than to the reality of who he really is. And, and in witnessing to people that don't know God, I've... Uh, you hear phrases like, I don't think God would be that way, or that's not the way my God operates. And uh, a God of love wouldn't allow all these things to happen. And you've probably heard all these excuses yourself. You probably even said them yourself at one time or another. Only Jesus had a perfect knowledge of who God is because he was God in the flesh. In Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 8 through 10, 
Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of the world, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. And you are complete in him who is at the head of all principality and all. If you want to know what God is really like, you have to look at Jesus. Because he is God. You have to look at how he taught, what, the way in which he taught, how he interacted with different people. I know this thing moves. <laughs> you need a cup holder over here, you know that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm sure all of you have seen this movie, uh, The Sound of Music. Now, I, you know, I don't know if there's anybody who hadn't seen it at least four times in their life. Uh, but the, the, there is one line that stands out. Uh, and I, I hadn't planned on saying, but I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, there's one line that really stands out that carries a lot of theological power in it. And that is where the mother superior is telling another nun that she always has faith in her doubts. You see, when we talk about God understanding your thoughts and your issues, he also understands your doubts. Now, we wrestle with this concept. How can you have faith in doubt? That seems like a, like a contradiction in terms. But actually, and when I first saw that movie and I heard that, that line being spoken, I thought, that, that's kind of weird. That, that seems sort of contradictory. How do you have faith in doubt? And the more I thought about that, uh, over time, I come to the realization that faith and doubt actually go hand in hand together. You see, because without doubt in your life, there is no inquiry. There is no questioning. We're not like the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if the things that Paul said were actually true. You see, without inquiry, without, without questioning, without examination, there is just mindless acceptance. And then you become susceptible to every wind of doctrine, to every charlatan who's begging for money so he can beg for more money. And there is no discernment there. There is no growth. Doubt propels us to grow. Because there has to be this investigation. Why do I have this doubt? What is missing in my life? And I can't do that unless I have a greater examination and understanding of God's word and the way in which God is working in my life and a direction that he is taking me in. So doubt and faith are actually intended to work together. They are not in conflict with each other, but they work hand and glove together. And that's all part of who we are as a people. It is within us to always examine, to always inquire, to always we, we have that curiosity to want to know. And we have to apply that tendency in our own lives to examine God's word. And I'm going to say a little bit more about the importance of God's word in, uh, in a little bit. But as faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, if I'm going to grow, if I'm going to master the... Uh, uh, the uh, 
the knowledge that is required of me as a Christian to grow and not just stagnate or be satisfied with just a few cliches or a few scripture verses, this doubt is going to propel me to become a more mature person, a more complete person. As I said, if you want to know what God is like, you have to take a look at Jesus. You have to look deeply into his life. In verse 7, it says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand uh, shall take hold of me. God is inescapable. We know that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter how upsetting that it might be, God is still with us, whether we feel it or not. Whether we have that emotional response that maybe you had when you first came to Christ, and now you're feeling empty, now you're feeling abandoned, now you're feeling uh, that God has maybe even God has given up on you. And you certainly may have been giving reasons for God to do that, but that is against God's nature to leave you. He said, I'll, Jesus said, I'll never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I will be with you at all times. Uh, so the, the, the psalm, David is asking, where can I flee from your presence? Uh, even the person who is trying to avoid God or deny his existence might find God to be inescapable or unavoidable. I, think, I find it kind of interesting how uh, certain prominent atheists seem to spend more time thinking and talking about God than a lot of people who do believe in him, even writing books about it. You know, and my thinking is, how, you know, it's a kind of a philosophical question is, how can you think about something that, does, that you don't think exists? And why would you bother? Okay? I don't believe in leprechauns. And you know what? I don't think about it either. I mean, uh, there was one time I saw a Disney movie, you know. With, uh, what is it? Uh, what is that old Disney movie from the 1950s? Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Uh, very entertaining, but also very fictional. What comes to my mind when I think about the inescapability of God, I think about uh, a, a British poet named Francis Thomas. Anybody ever heard of Francis Thomas? Okay, you should. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Francis Thomas was a very famous poet in England in the, in the uh, 19th century. He was born a very sickly child, and he grew up being very sickly and uh, suffered from some form of undiagnosed nerve pain, and so he was uh, prescribed opium, uh, which was a common uh, prescription for that time. And so he took opium, became addicted to it, and even though he eventually uh, uh, got a degree in medicine, he never practiced medicine. He made a living doing odd jobs and digging ditches and writing poetry. Uh, eventually, two sisters, two Christian sisters, took, uh, sort of took him under their wings, so to speak, and they enrolled him in a, in a kind of a, what would pass for today as a kind of a later, uh, prior teen challenge type of program, only it was run by the Catholic Church. Uh, 
And it was in that, uh, in that particular place where he came to Christ and was rehabilitated, got over his uh, addiction. And afterwards, he wrote a, a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Now, it's a kind of a lengthy poem, but I'm only going to read the first stanza of it. And it said, I, f- I fled him. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own, of the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under uh, running laughter, up, uh, up, vested hopes, I sped and shot. Uh, precipitated down titanic glooms of chasm fears and from those from those strong feet that followed followed after but with unhurried pace and unperturbed uh, uh, chase deliberate speed majestic instancy they beat and the voice that beat more instant than the feet said, all things betray thee who betrays me. You see, all the things that, that he tried to try to alleviate the pain that he suffered to, try to find self-fulfillment in his life, just like people today turn to drugs, to alcohol, to who knows what. And in the final analysis, come to the realization that we are just traitors like Peter. Like the other disciples, when Jesus was arrested, they all booked. They were all gone. They, were, they left him alone. We all betray him, and we try to substitute his work in our lives by things that eventually will betray us. You go down to the streets of Haverhill today, you see people who have been betrayed by the things that uh, that they thought would do something for them in their lives. The drugs, the alcohol, uh, the, the perversities, all of these things only ruined their lives. I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, Thomas in a minute. In verse 13, he says, For you form my inner parts. You... Uh, you covered me from my mother's womb. I will praise you, uh, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous uh, are your works, and that my soul knows that very well. Life is holy. Life is sacred. Recently, we've uh, seen the overturning of the Roe v. Wade uh, decision in the Supreme Court. I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't think this is an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but for us as Christians, we look at life from conception as something that is holy unto God. Now, we may not act like it. We may not treat our bodies like it. But we are created for that purpose. We have been created separate from all the other species in the planet. Now, we talk about dolphins and chimpanzees and, and all the, I mean, they may be clever. They can jump through hoops and maybe a chimpanzee knows how to fish uh, termites out of a log with a stick. And that's all well and good. I won't do it, but 
uh, that's great for them. But God, God made us not only separate, but for a reason. There is a purpose, and it's not who you're going to marry, what you're going to have, or what direction your life is going to go in. That's only part of it. Uh, I like a, a statement that C.S. Lewis said one time, that when you die, that's simply the end of the introduction of the book. You are now on page one, chapter one of your life. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, uh, said, then God said, let us make man in our own image. Here there's an allusion to the, uh, to the Trinity. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, uh, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 7, we have a little bit more specific uh, detail. Very briefly, he says, And God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, in the original King James, uh, the old King James, it says man became a living soul. And, and I kind of like that because that makes us different. That makes us separate. But what is this breath that Genesis is talking about? Is there another example in the Bible that, uh, that I can find that can sort of enhance that? And I find that in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God, uh, when we think about inspiration, you know, words kind of change their definition uh, over years and century. And inspiration is, uh, is one of those words. Uh, today, when we think of inspiration, we think of somebody getting maybe a great idea and it's going to do something really wonderful. But the... People who worked on the King James Bible originally, to them the word inspiration meant to be directed by God. The, uh, the word that Paul uses is a, it, uh, it, of course, is a Greek word. It's pronounced uh, theonumatos. Uh, and it's actually a contraction of two words. Theo, of course, means God. And pneumatos means breath. And depending on the context, it could also be used to mean breathe, blowing, wind, anything, any kind of movement of air. And so uh, literally translated, what this word would mean would be God breathed. And what, when we read God's word, what he is doing is he is breathing into us life into our spirit. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In Genesis, God breathed into Adam his image. Today, God breathes into you, into me, the image of Jesus Christ. It is life-changing. It is life-giving. It is life-enhancing. 
The psalmist goes on to say in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts, uh, how your thoughts to me are, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I, uh, if I should count them, they would be more than the numbers of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You see, one of the purposes, and I think this is one of the main purposes that God has in affecting our salvation, is so that we can have this intimate relationship with him. Now, we are made up of different types of characteristics. Uh, Personally, for myself, uh, I tend to be very analytical. Uh, and less emotional, and some people are kind of the opposite. And I know emotions can be deceptive, but yet emotions are still a part of who we are. Anybody who does, who's completely absent of any emotion at all is probably mentally dead. You cannot deny those, uh, those things that exist in our lives. And they're put there for a reason, so that we can experience this intimacy that God wants us to have with him. And so that's why it's important to, number one, to to know and to understand the word, to allow your doubts to drive you or to compel you to a deeper understanding of God and his word and his relationship to you and his purpose for your life. And also just to experience the, the closeness of his spirit in your life. Not taking into consideration all the things that are going on in your life, but just to Take that time alone with him. And if you don't take that time to be alone with God, then you're missing out on something that is probably the most important thing in your spiritual walk. And that is when you become intimate with with God, then you gain a greater knowledge of his love and what that love really is really means. You see, when Peter betrayed Jesus, it wasn't just Peter, it was all the disciples. They all betrayed him. And yet God loved them. As Francis Thomas betrayed Jesus through his life of trying to run away from him, yet wherever he went, he was still there. God was still there. It's like the psalmist said, when I wake up, I'm with you. I'm with you when I wake up, I'm with you during the day, and I'm with you at night. Whether you want him to be there or not, he's there. He is the unavoidable God. Now, you can, you can construct this God in some way that makes you feel comfortable, or you can just totally ignore him and pretend that he doesn't exist. and Spend the rest of your life thinking about him anyway. God breathe into us life, not just a greater dimension of spiritual life here, but also eternal life. When we talk about uh, uh, in Genesis where God breathed into him life, it was intended on the part of God that man live eternally. And it is still God's plan that we live eternally. This is just the introduction. Whatever you're going through in your life, it doesn't matter how long your life is, how short your life is, it's not the length or the brevity of your life, but it is what you're doing with that life. Now, 
people may ask, uh, I remember a, uh, when I first came to, to the Lord, I was talking to uh, a Lutheran pastor, and he was telling me about an incident where a, uh, a woman, uh, her 10-year-old child was killed uh, by being hit by a car. And she asked him, where was God when my son was killed? And he said, the same place when, when his son died. It is not within our, uh, what I would call our realm, to try to comfort people using pat answers and cliches. Oh, that they're in a better place. Or um, God has a purpose. Or, you know, something that you've probably heard all these cliches in the past. I remember hearing a story I was reading uh, our Daily Bread years ago where a woman uh, suffered the loss of a husband. This is back during uh, the 19th century. Queen Victoria heard about this particular incident. And so she decided to visit the woman. Uh, I don't know who the woman was. I don't know what the connection between her and the queen was or who the husband was. But she went to the woman's house, stayed there for about an hour, and then left. And so the woman was asked by reporters, what did she say? She said, nothing. She uh, just sat there next to her, holding her hand. Sometimes quietness, the absence of words, speak more than, than all of the wisdom that we can come up with, all of the cliches, all the pat answers, but just that understanding. I know what you're going through. And Elizabeth, uh, Victoria knew this because her own husband died of tuberculosis uh, at the young age of 42. The psalm ends pretty much the same way as it began. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there be any wicked way within me and lead me to the way everlasting. We have to come to that point in our life where we just say, God, expose me. Well, we carry too many secrets around. And those secrets darken our hearts. They darken our minds, our thinking. We feel like we have to hide rather than exposing ourselves. There's fear that we will be ridiculed or that we will be ostracized or that uh, people will think badly of us. And maybe they will. Uh, But in the body of Christ, what we should encounter with this exposure of self is acceptance. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. This recognition that whatever a person does, I am capable of doing it also. If I was in those circumstances or any other kind of circumstances, I would blow it. Just like Peter did, just like the disciples did. When they realized that they, were, they could be arrested and crucified along with Jesus, their weaknesses were exposed. And yet God I'm doing this because I love you and I want to make corrections in your life. He tells Thomas, go ahead, take a look. Put your hand in here. 
put your hand in my hand. See, it's, it's real. It, it actually happened. And so th- Thomas changes. Francis Thomas died at the young age of 47, also from tuberculosis. And on his grave is, is, is written, you will find me in the nurseries of heaven. find that sometimes the brevity of words oftentimes speak volumes more than, than all of man's wisdom, all the philosophies, all of the false religions. Just that quietness that David and Francis Thomas experience and just being in his presence. When I wake up, we're still together. When I go to bed, we're still together. When I am in my darkest hour, you are still there. Even when I don't feel you, even when I don't experience you, even though the prognosis is bad, he is with us. Uh, as uh, Corey Ten Boom once said, that his love is so deep, uh, there's no sin so deep, or no pit so deep that his love isn't deeper. And so I want us to experience right now the presence of God. I want us to get alone right now in prayer and just allow God to begin to speak to you. I'm going to ask Pastor to come up and, and lead us in prayer. But I want you to take this time now and say, Lord, okay, expose me. See if there be any wicked way within me and touch my life. Make me the, the person you want me to be, uh, whatever that is. Uh, But I do know that ultimately he wants us to become like Christ because he is breathing into you through his word, the image of Jesus. Uh, There was an incident back in the 1960s where the general secretary of the United Nations, his name was Uthant, was negotiating a peace treaty in the Belgium Congo, which is today the of Congo and his plane I never really found out but somehow his plane lost power and crashed and everyone on board was killed when they found his briefcase and they opened it up he had a copy of a book called The Image of Christ which was written by a monk back in the 19th century Um, but he carried with him what was important to him just like some of us may carry a Bible or, uh, or, or some memory of uh, loved ones. But we carry with us the image of Jesus. We carry his scars. We carry his burden. We carry with us the, or rather I should say, we are carried by the power of the Holy Spirit who leads us, who guides us, who shares his love for us, regardless of the weaknesses, regardless of the betrayals, regardless of anything that might hinder our relationship with him, those things don't matter to God because he paid the price for those. And he is inviting us right now to come and enter in. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time that we've had to spend with you 
to listen to your word. And again, I pray that through the weakness of preaching, Lord, that your, the power of your spirit would be manifested. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.